Good morning. It's good to, to be with you and to welcome you here to, to Grace Chapel. Ooh. Um, if you look in your bulletin, you'll, you'll notice there's a quote there by Dallas Willard. He, he was a mentor. We never met, but he's someone that I've read and have learned a lot from. And one day, he was asked about dying, and this is what he said. I think that when I die, it might be some time until I know it. I think that when I die, it might be some time until I know it. Now, when I first heard that, I didn't quite know what to make of it, but as I've thought about it, I've come to want that to be true of me. What Dallas was describing was a life so filled with the Spirit of Christ that the move from being united with him on earth to being united with him in glory would be seamless, almost imperceptible to him. Now, for the Apostle Paul, this kind of unity, being in Christ, was so profound that he believed what was true of Christ was in some sense true of those who followed him. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So if you and I, if we're a follower of Jesus, we are united with him. And it's Jesus who made that unity possible, and he wants to be united with us. He he desires it so much that he prayed that way in John chapter 17. He prayed to his father. Here's what he prayed. Jesus was asking his father, I pray that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So to be in Christ and to be in the Father is to be in one another. And that's the kind of unity that the world longs for, whether it knows it or not. That's what human beings are made for. It's what humankind had in the garden. And it's the message that the church is called to share. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. That's how the world will come to believe the gospel. The church becoming perfectly one 
is the one thing that will make the gospel credible to the world. It's a regular theme in Paul over and over in Colossians 3, where we're going to be today. He's going to revisit this idea because in the first two chapters, Paul has just hammered home the idea of unity between Jew and Gentile, being united to Christ. And that unity means that what is true of Christ is in some sense true of us. So let's read today's text. We're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's just lots to think about in this text. To begin, we need to recognize that Paul is a sophisticated thinker, and he cared about precision in his writing. So he's not winging it here. He's thought it through. He chooses his words very carefully. All that to say is that Paul's grammar matters. So since school starts tomorrow, we're going to do a little grammar review. You're welcome. So in English, we use different kinds of verbs to express different kinds of actions, right? We use active voice verbs, they're called, when we want to show the subject of a sentence doing something to an object that's in the sentence. For example, the Israelites ate the manna. Israelites, the subject, they did something to the manna, they ate it. That's what active voice means. Now, passive voice, on the other hand, doesn't show action being done by the subject, but rather it's action being done to the subject. So, example, the manna was eaten. Again, with passive voice, the action, meaning was eaten, is being done to the subject, the manna. Okay. Another important grammatical concept 
is a verb's mood. Who knew that verbs had a mood? Well, that's just the way a verb expresses its action. And one of those is called the indicative mood. It's the most common, and it's how we make factual statements or ask questions. Example, the manna was delicious. That's an indicative mood. Another is the imperative. As a parent, this is your favorite. It's how we give a command. Eat your manna. (laughs) Or go outside and gather some manna. There's another mood. It's called the subjunctive mood. And it expresses counterfactuals, things that aren't true or aren't true yet. So, example, if I could gather manna, I would never have to go to the store. Subjunctive mood. Okay, now why do we care about any of that? Well, in today's text, Paul has carefully arranged in parallel form active and passive verbs that flip back and forth between moods. But if we just think about the grammar, I think we can figure out what Paul is up to, and then maybe we can have a better understanding of the text. So let's do that. Verse 1. Let's jump in. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Okay, look at the first verb there, have been raised. That's a passive voice verb, meaning that the raising is something that was done to the Colossians. They didn't raise themselves. The Lord did that. And it's in the indicative mood, meaning it's an expression of fact. It's a completed fact. Now look at the next verb, seek. Seek is an active verb. It's something the Colossians are supposed to do. And it's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. Seek. In verse 2, the verb set your minds is also active. It's also imperative. Paul is commanding the Colossians to actively and intentionally set their mind on things that are above where Christ is. Look at verse 3, the verb you have died. That's also active. That means the Colossians did it. They died. It's indicative, meaning it's an expression of a fact, a completed fact. The Colossians died. The next verb, is hidden, carries with it this idea of preservation, and it's, it's passive, meaning the is something done for the Colossians. And it's indicative, meaning it's also an expression of a fact, a completed fact. So this mixing of verbs, we have active and we got passive, indicative and imperative, it raises a question. If the Colossians have been raised with Christ, it's completed. And if they have died, they've died. And if their life is hidden with Christ in God, then why do they still need to seek the things that are above? Aren't they already, in some sense, there? Why do they need to set their mind on things above? Isn't their life already hidden with Christ in God? 
Well, in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul has gone on and on about how Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension has secured everything necessary for the redemption of the world. Why then does Paul give commands that sound an awful lot like there's more to be done? Like I have work to do. Well, I think the grammar of verse 4 might help us, give us a clue. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The verb appears as it reflects Christ's coming is in that subjunctive mood. Recall, that means it expresses a counterfactual, something that's not true or not true yet. This appearing hasn't happened yet, which means our appearing with him in glory hasn't happened yet. And this is where the tension lies in the Christian life. It's a tension between what's already true of us, what's already true of us, and what's not yet revealed in us. Sometimes this is described as the already and the not yet of our life. I'm going to suggest that when Paul uses passive and indicative verbs to relay things done for us, but not by us, things that are true of believers, but not fully realized, he wants us to feel that tension. He wants us to recognize the tension of the already and the not yet, and he wants us to long for the experience of the already. He wants us to become what we already are. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. So we're Grace Chapel. We are part of the universal body of Christ. And we're on a journey. We are on an exodus through the desert of the not yet and into the promised land of the already. Now, much of the, much of the scripture consists of directions as to how to make the journey. That's why the New Testament writers to the Christian life as a walk. And as we walk toward our already, our job is to invite others to join us, to pursue their own already as they travel through their not yet. So I imagine the church, Grace Chapel, we're a giant caravan of people, like the Israelites, traveling toward the promised land. We're walking toward a place we've only read about motivated by the allure of a restored world, moving towards the land of already. Traveling. You don't have to be very old to know that traveling in a group that's larger than one presents its own challenges. (laughs) Even traveling with a small group produces tension. I remember when our kids were little, we took a trip to the state fair. It was still in Lincoln then. It was hot. The pavement was hot. There wasn't any breeze. We had walked up and down the midway. We had eaten state fair food. (laughs) We had gone through all the 4-H exhibits. We were almost to the vendor exhibits in Bob Devaney, which was the promised land because it was (laughs) air-conditioned. We were about 50 yards away from air-conditioning when our youngest son just sat down. (laughs) 
He just plopped down on the north side of Bob Devaney. He, he found a piece of shade about this wide, and he owned it. He just plopped down there. Um, you know, we didn't know what to do. We tried all sorts of things. We tried threats, which every good parent does. <laughs> and then if that doesn't work, you try bribery. Those are your options. <laughs> and then, then you look at the older sister. She looks at her brother on the ground and says, if you can't walk at the state fair, and she uses that tone that big sisters have, if you can't walk at the state fair, there's no way we're going with grandma to Disneyland. <laughs> and he looks up at her and he says, I don't want to go to Disneyland. <laughs> and she, she looks down at him and she, said, or she kind of looks at Sally and I, she says, let's just leave him. He'll be fine. Uh, we never went to Disneyland. Was... Anyway, the Colossians have a, have a group bigger than our, our family, and they're traveling together. Paul knows there will be difficulties. So he gives them and us these really explicit instructions about how we're to behave while we travel. He wants our behavior toward one another to reflect the kind of unity Jesus prayed for in John 17. If we want others to join our caravan, if we want our neighbors to join the caravan, we better demonstrate that what we're about is real and something they might want to be a part of. So let's look at some of the commands that Paul gives the Colossians. In verse 5, he tells them to put to death a host of divisive behaviors. Put to death is an active verb and it's an imperative, it's a command. In other words, don't do these things. They're divisive. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. He reminds the Colossians that that's how they used to walk. It's how they walked before they began their exodus out of the not yet and into the already. Paul gives more commands, imperatives. Put them all away, he says. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. What do all of these have in common? They erode our unity. When we use angry and malicious words, we are shredding the fabric that holds us together. When we lie to one another, we tear at the threads that bind us to each other. Lying corrodes the bonds of affection that we need if we're going to travel together. Any Rings of Power fans here seen that? I see a few hands out there. This is a, there's a scene in there with the, with the pre-hobbits. They're going on a journey, and they say, they say the same thing every time before they leave. They say, nobody goes off trail, and nobody walks alone. That's the Harfoots. That's their mantra. Paul was a Harfoot. That's what he tells the church. Nobody goes off trail, Nobody walks alone. Verse 10, Paul says, Paul commands, put on the new self. This new self is being renewed. Being renewed, that's passive. Being renewed after the image of its creator. Now, after the image of its creator is just another way of saying the new self is being moved from the not yet and into its already. 
And look at what the result is in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is a central tenet of Paul's thinking. He says something just like it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the land of the already, none of our world's distinctions really matter. In the land of already, it's not our ethnicity or religious tradition or our educational attainment or social status or wealth or sex, or political affiliation. None of those things matter because in the already, Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, Paul gives another command. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And as the King James says, forbearance. These traits, these describe the new self of verse 10. They describe men and women who are living in there already. Paul's command to the church is forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now this is really encouraging to me because Paul knows that as the church makes makes its exodus through the not yet and into the already, that we're going to step on each other's toes. But that when we do, we can maintain our unity if we forgive as we've been forgiven. Text closes with this, and above all, put these on, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if the church is to move beyond the not yet of anger, wrath, malice, immorality, slander, obscene talk, and lying, and into the already of perfect harmony, then we must put on love, Paul says. And what is love? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritated or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Those are certainly things that love does. And by doing those things, the church will be bound together in perfect harmony, Paul says. It's interesting that binds there, that's active. That's an active verb. That means that the subject, the actor who is binding, must be love. But how can love bind the church together? Certainly, mere human love is not capable of that. Remember when we read John 17 about the unity of the Father and the Son and the church? I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Well, in John 16, just before that, Jesus tells his disciples that it's to their advantage that he goes away. He's going to the Father because when he goes, he's going to send the Spirit. 
And it's the Spirit who births the church and unifies the people of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony because within the triune God, the Spirit is love. Here's a way of, there's a way of thinking about that that I found helpful. And because when the church fathers were trying to formulate language for how the Bible describes Father, Son, and Spirit, they used the language of knowledge and love. Here's kind of a, a, a summary. Let me, let me read this. This is really helpful to me. The Father is God, a personal God. He knows himself as God. And that self-knowledge is total, full, absolute, complete, and personal. It is so real that it is itself the perfect representation of the Father. It itself, it is itself a person, eternally generated by the Father as his own self-knowledge. It is the Word of God, the person of the eternal, eternally begotten Son. Now, between the Father and the Son exists a single bond of mutual love. This one love is total, full, absolute, and complete, personal. It is itself a person, the person of the Spirit. So within God, there exists an eternal relationship of knowledge and love. God's knowledge of God is the Son. God's love of God is the Spirit. So the Spirit is love, and it is the Spirit, if we let him, who will keep us united in our exodus through the not yet and into the already. And it's our unity that will draw our neighbors and friends into the body of Christ. And there they can experience a unity so unlike anything that the world has to offer. When Randy was praying up here, talking about what is it that will help us help our neighborhood walk with Christ. At its heart, it's how we love one another and the unity that we maintain. Because the world wants that. The world wants to be in a place where people love one another and put the other's needs ahead of their own. And we can be that kind of place as we yield to the power of the Spirit. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would be one we would be so united that the world would look at us and see you, your relationship with your Son and the Spirit. Father, we, we want to be with you and in you. We know that we are. We want to have that be our life experience. So as we go this week, I pray that we would love one another as you have loved us so that the world may believe that you sent the Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.